Uh, good morning. My name is Sean. I'm the pastor here at Grace Church, and I'm glad you guys showed up. Um, this is the second week in our new series, uh, Weapons of Self-Destruction. Uh, the idea behind this is that I don't need uh, Satan to tempt me to do wrong. I'm fairly capable of doing wrong on my own. I don't need any outside influences to wreck my life. Um, I'm, I'm, pretty, <laughs> I'm an expert at, at wrecking my own life. I think I've turned over a million new leaves, and, and, and how many resolutions have we made uh, and then remade and then just said, screw it, this doesn't work for me, and we stopped making resolutions. Uh, it, it, I, I can try to be a better person all I want, but it seems like there's certain things uh, that keep coming up that mess me up, and so that's what we're talking about. One of those things we addressed last week was our past, and we said that there's nothing uh, as powerful as our past to wreck, to sabotage our present and, and hijack the direction of our future. There's also nothing like the past uh, that is as powerful uh, to, to push us uh, toward God uh, both now and then to depend on him in our future. So that's, that's kind of the direction we went last weekend, how, how God isn't the author or the, origina the originator of, of the brokenness and, and sin that either we've done or done to us in our past, but how that God never wastes our pain. And today we're talking about fear. Next weekend we'll, we'll be talking about comparison, how, how that messes us up and, and keeps us from becoming the person that God's calling us to be or getting us closer uh, in our relationship with God. And then the last week, we'll talk about shame. Um, and that's where we'll wrap up, wrap up this series. Um, I don't care how old you are. Fear is something that we all struggle with. You're, you're afraid of the stock market crashing. You're afraid of your, your, your renters uh, not, not paying their rent and then you losing your house. You're afraid of, of uh, uh, your, your landlord selling your house for, out from under you. You're afraid of not passing the eighth grade. You're afraid of the bully in sixth grade. Um, I mean, I, I, I think our, our fears change, but, but fear, fear never goes away. I'm 45 years old, and this past Thursday night, um, I was asked to, uh, Friday morning, I was actually asked to speak to a group of pastors in New York City, downtown New York City, and it was really early, and uh, they wanted me to, like, I had to be there for 8 o'clock, and they wanted me to drive, and so I was like, um, okay. anyway, I talked them into putting us up in a hotel, so since they were buying from my hotel, what does it matter who else is in there, so I brought Billy Jane and the kids with me, so we drove down there Thursday night, and I wanted to get down there early enough that we could go see a show, go do something fun, go walk around in Central Park at night, because that's smart. Um, something else like that, right? And, and so uh, Billy Jane and I got in a discussion as to how long it would take us to get to New York because Ryan said, how long is it going to take us? And Billy Jane said, four and a half hours. I was like, woman, I was like, it's never taken me three hours. Like I can, and she says, well, I was counting in, I was counting in the time of day. I'm like, but you were, you know, not counting on the awesomeness of my, like I, Every time I get in a car, it's like pole position from seventh grade at the arcade. It's all about getting to the front of the line. And I know there's more cars up there. So I just keep scoring how many cars I pass. That's, that's, the, way, that's the way that I drive. So uh, I thought it would take us two hours and 45 minutes. Um, and so about three and a half hours into it, while we're sitting in traffic in Hartford, I realized Billy Jane's a genius. Um, so I was way wrong. So we didn't get there early enough for anything fun, really. Uh, so I dropped Billy Jane and the kids off in front of the hotel. And Ryan normally gets out with Billy Jane. Like even this morning when I, when I drove in to church, uh, Ryan gets out with them because I, you know, I, I park on the, the lot across the street or whatever. So it, it's the most convenient thing. But this time, Ryan goes, I'm going to go with Dad. And I'm like, 
just made me feel so special. This is what, like, my son loves me. This is great. And so, you know, there's no parking lots anywhere in New York City, but like the basement floor of every building is a parking lot. And it's like, they got way too many cars stuffed into that living room than what they should have in there. It feels like, like, like it looks like six cars will be in here, but then they just jam all these cars in. I don't, like if there was ever a fire in that building, we would all die all trying to get out at the same time. Um, so I pulled in uh, to this, the, the, right around the corner was the first parking lot, but that's a one-way coming this way. So I couldn't do that one, so I went to the next block where I could do that, and there was a parking garage in the basement of a building. So I, I pulled into that, and the attendant came out, and he said, uh, I'm sorry, the, the, lot's, the lot's full. And I'm looking around, and I can see three empty spaces. So I go, are, are you sure the lot's full? And he goes, oh, yeah, we're full. Well, I don't want to... Like, I, this guy might be like Russian mafia. I don't know who this guy is. So I'm like, I'm not gonna lie. anyway, so I'm like, all right, that's, that's cool. So I get back in the car, and I'm going to go back around to that one-way street. So it's a closer parking lot anyway. So I get back in the car, and I look behind me. There's nobody there all the way back to the street. So I put it in reverse, and I back out of the building. Still nobody there. I'm, all, I'm, I'm across the, part, the sidewalk, and as I'm going down into the little, the, the little edge of the uh, gutter, and then out onto the street, a dude runs out behind, like he's walking, like he tries to make it back behind my car, and, you know, taps my car like this, like I hit him or something, right? And then he walks around the car, and like he's walking fast. He's wearing dress pants and a, a dress shirt, no tie, uh, dark blue pants with a light blue top and like I just in case I had to give a description of the police department and like frizzy hair um so he walks around like this and he looks back at me and he's like like this right like like I'm the idiot so you know like a wise mature adult I uh chose not to let that go (laughs) and I rolled down my window I know like you can read the future you know it's coming so I said hey It's not like you didn't see me. That's all I said. Well, you'd have thought I'd have just dropped every F-bomb on his grandma who goes to to mass every day or something like like, that. That dude just, he comes running back to the car. And he's like, you know, beep, beep. Okay, I was going to say, and he's all like, but I realize I can't tell you anything he said. So when we finally end up at the hotel, back in the hotel room, um, Ryan walks in the door, and he says to Billy, and he said, Bob, this guy said all kinds of bad words to dad, which is great because he didn't tell her all the bad words I said back. I'm kidding. I didn't say any bad words back. The guy came over and was all yelling at me, and the pedestrians have to ride away, and blah, 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 blah. So I'm just like, I'm sorry, dude, I didn't see you. My, my bad, I didn't see you. Hey, I didn't say, like, I don't know how many times I can say this, right? So I back, so he turns around and starts, you know, storming off, and he's walking all like this. And I pull back onto the street. And I start rolling towards the red light. And as I'm getting closer to the red light, he steps out from in between two cars and comes and charges the car again. I know. And he goes, so I stop because I'm an idiot. And he goes, roll down your window. Let's talk about this. And so I pulled out my Glock and I shot him three times. He's dead. (laughs) But I'm going to the funeral today, so it's okay. Right? (laughs) He's like, roll down the window. I'm like, I'm not rolling down the window, right? Because, like, I'm sitting in a car. I'm two feet below you. You've got the advantage, the tactical. Like, I so he called me a coward in front of my 12-year-old son. That's when I shot him. <laughs> so he's like, coward, roll down the window. I'm like, I'm not, you know, I said, I've got a 12-year-old in here, moron, right? 
Um, but he keeps yelling, roll down the window, you coward, roll down the And here's what I know, that if I rolled down the window and he's up above me, he'd just go, he'd grab my head and then take it off and run. Like, I'm in a seat belt. I'm sitting below him. I can't, like, what am I going to do? Reach out my arm like this and go, ugh. Like, you can't, like, first of all, I can't even reach him. How am I even going to punch him? So that's why I didn't roll down the window. Actually, so what I did was um, I rolled around. After he walked away, I rolled around behind him, jumped out with a two-by-four, and smacked him in the back of the head. I didn't do that either. I just sat there and took it. got angry. I was shaking, so nervous, because this dude's a crazy man. Like, what normal person does this? So then I keep rolling, and there's the red light just like 50 feet away. Here's the red light. So I'm sitting at the red light. So I, I pull ahead of him, and I'm at the red light. And I'm like, dear God, turn green, turn green, turn green, turn green, turn green. Because I can see this guy walking up like this. Turn green, turn green, turn green, turn green. And it's not turning green. And he stops at the corner and turns around again. And I remember, holy cow, like each time he does this, it's going to escalate. So like, I'm, I'm, I'm like, what? Okay, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I, have you ever been in a situation like that? I don't care who you are, you're going to drive through a neighborhood someday and you're going to lock the doors. I don't, like, I, we got like some big, heavy-duty, beastly, like man beasts at our church. But I'm sure even you guys will go through a neighborhood someday and you lock the door. Just because like, you, you know what I'm saying? Like we all, uh, like even Pastor Ken, the guy who prayed right before I walked up here. If I didn't know Pastor Ken, like he's all like short, stocky, got that flat top. Kind of looks like a punk anyway, you know what I'm saying? Like if, I, if we were, like, walking opposite each other in a, in a, in a, in a uh, alley, I think I would, like, go, uh, I, I'll drop something back around that corner. Like, I don't, like, we find ourselves in, in places like that all the time now, trying to turn it into a positive with Ryan. And, and uh, yeah, I- anyway, I don't need to finish the rest of that story. It gets longer. Uh, but it was, it was a, uh, a moment when, when um, I was afraid, and it was really recent. And I think that there are... A million things that I was afraid of happening that never did happen. You know what I mean? I mean, instantly your mind goes to where this could go, and uh, then, then, then that affects the way you act in the present. And the thing is, is that I was afraid of something happening that, that never ended up happening. Um, and so the truth as it relates to fear is that this fear of future possibilities drives us in almost every area of our lives. Fear is one of the strongest motivating factors in the decisions that we make. Your fear of being alone the rest of your life will cause you to compromise in who you date today. Now, you don't know if you're going to be alone the rest of your life, but the fear of the worst-case scenario happening to you, right, if that's your worst-case scenario, causes you to make a different decision today. Your fear of never becoming happy will cause you to compromise your values in order to get ahead now so that in the future you won't be on... You see what I'm saying? Our fear of future possibilities, fear is a motivating factor. We buy stuff because we're, like, like commercials sell us with fear. Uh, news stations sell us with fear. If you don't buy our product, you're going to miss out. If you don't buy a product, then you're not going to become. Then other people won't see you as whatever it is they know you want to be seen as. Fear drives our spending habits. It drives our dating habits. It drives our, our, our other, other financial habits. It it drives uh, whether or not we're willing to compromise our integrity at work. It drives whether or not, you know what I'm saying? Like fear is a huge motivating factor in the decisions that we make. It just rarely causes us to make the right decisions. It pushes us to make f- poor financial decisions to put off getting right with God. If I get right with God, then I'm afraid that I'm going to lose this. And if I lose this, I don't know how God can replace it, right? If I do the right thing. 
moves us to live selfishly, to take advantage of others, and to compromise. So here's my question. What's your greatest fear? What are you afraid of? Are you afraid of rejection? Failure? Are you afraid of pain? Poverty? Maybe you're afraid of loneliness or insignificance. You, you have a fear. I know you do because you're human. And we're all broken that way. Where does that fear take you? What does it drive you to do? How has fear become a weapon of destruction in your life? Fear controls us like... Um, my fear of, of losing loved ones. When I was five, the month before I turned six, um, on, on, uh, my mom's little brother, my mom was in her 20s. Um, I was six, so my mom was 27. And uh, she had a little brother who was 17. And uh, he was from Savannah, Georgia, and he got busted like multiple times stealing cars. And so the judge in, in Georgia told him, uh, Chuck, here's your three options. Uh, one, prison as an adult. Two, uh, military. Or three, leave the state of Georgia. So um, my dad was a youth pastor. He was 28 at the time. And for a living, he helps kids. So I think he thought that since this is what I do for a living, I, I think I, I, I can be absurd. I, I can help Chuck. So they invited Chuck to move in with our family. And so Chuck moved in with our family at the beginning of my kindergarten year uh, when I was five. And uh, by Christmas... Uh, things between Chuck and, and my grandparents is my mom's dad. He's kind of a bad guy anyway. Some of you guys know that story. Um, but on Christmas Day, he was on the phone to, uh, and, and he had gone back to Georgia and then had come uh, back uh, to Detroit where we were living at the same time. So Chuck had left and then had come back. And um, when he, he came back on Christmas Day, he was having an argument with his dad, my grandfather, and said, sometimes I, I just, I just want to kill myself. And my grandfather said to him, well, I'll tell you what, the world would be a better place if you did. And so my Uncle Chuck killed himself in my bedroom on Christmas Day. So I, I didn't see it. Um, thank, so, I mean, I, I was in the house. I, I remember that. I remember sitting in uh, the church van in our driveway for hours and hours and hours with my mom who was bawling and my dad's dad who lived in town, and we were there forever. And I remember that, like I remember glimpses of that day, but I had no idea how that was going to impact me because um, in February, just, just two months after that, my grandmother and my granddad on my dad's side uh, took a, he was a pastor, took a mission trip over to Southeast Asia somewhere. I'm not sure which country, uh, but, but I didn't know this, but my grandmother already had brain cancer. I just didn't know it because you don't tell that to a six-year-old. I just turned six. You don't tell that to little kids, right? Like, because, like, it might be, what, six months to a year? And you don't want to put that burden on a six-year-old to carry for another, you know, 12 months. So I didn't know that she already had cancer, but she did. All I knew is that when she got back from her trip, um, she had lost her. Next time I saw her, she was bald because of the chemo, and she was wearing a wig that didn't look natural. And I remember how scared I was of her. And then before school got out, she died. What ended up happening in me is this fear that anytime somebody I loved left me, they would die when they came back. And I, I didn't understand that until, you know, I had some counseling later on as an adult. But 
I'd be in middle school, and like it, it racked my life. It, 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 that fear of somebody close to me dying paralyzed me and impacted every decision I, I made. My dad, middle school, gave me a John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not like the world gives do I give unto you. So let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You believe in God, believe also in me. I mean, I've got that memorized. I've had it memorized since I was 10 years old. Because my dad said, every time you feel fear, you need to quote the scripture verse. This God's word has the power to break these things in our life. And my dad had taught me that as a kid. So I memorized that. And so here I am in my 40s. I still have that Bible verse memorized. And when I... But I, I can still, and, and so that got me to a place where I almost don't fear, uh, I never worry about anything to a fault sometimes, uh, but I, I don't know that I've ever killed that monster in my heart as much as I've just forced him to hide in the closet. But every once in a while, I can see his fingers creeping out from behind the closet door, right? Like, like even last night, Billy Jane was uh, sticking around for a ladies' meeting for the focus group that's coming up in a couple of months, and and maybe I was just more attuned to it because of the topic this weekend. I have no idea, but but it's like almost 10 o'clock, and like these meetings are normally two hours. The evening service got out at 6 o'clock. They started the meeting at 6.30. That's 8.30, and it's 10 o'clock. It's an hour and a half late. She hasn't even texted to say, you know, that she stopped off at a bar and got drunk or something. I, mean, I don't know. Pray for my wife. She's burdened. I'm just kidding. <laughs> With me. <laughs> but like, so like instantly I'm like, okay. Right? I pull up my phone, and I'm like, all right, this is ridiculous. Do I text her and say where you at or not, right? I had my phone out, and then I chose to put it down, right? I put it down, and Lauren goes, oh, mom's here. My point is, as I'm 45, and that monster still ain't dead. He's just hiding in the closet, and every once in a while, he starts to peek his head out, and I can feel that terror starting to build up in the back of my mind that something bad's going to happen to somebody I love. Now, that's my fear. That's my monster. What's your monster look like? We've all got one. And here's the biggest problem with fear. Fear says that God has lost control, that he doesn't know what's about to happen, that it's all spiraling downward and there's nothing he can do with it. That's what fear says. Fear says that what God has planned for my life is probably the worst thing that I can actually imagine for my life. See, fear is when I take a future possibility and allow it to become my present reality. I'm going to say that again. Fear is when I take a future possibility, something that might not even happen, but it's never the best case scenario, right? It's always the worst case scenario. And I obsess over the worst case scenario and allow it to become my present reality. So I'm acting right now as if the worst possible thing that could ever happen to me has already happened to me when it hasn't. You've probably, you're probably recognizing this in your own life right now. My perception of my future is worse than whatever God has actually planned for my life. How do I get past this? David says in Psalm chapter 27, verse 1, he's got this, this little verse at the beginning of this chapter where he says, the Lord is my light and my salvation, so why should I be afraid? David often talked about these two things, God being a light, a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. And what he says is, 
that God is a light. He's my light. He's the one who directs my steps. He's the one who guides my path, and he's my salvation. He's the one who rescues me from the brokenness of the world. So he says, God is the one who directs my life and the one who rescues me from the brokenness that is in this world. So why should I be afraid? And I think that that's awesome. I, that, that makes sense to me, and that's rational. If God is directing my steps, and if God is the one who rescues me from the brokenness of this world, then it really doesn't make sense for me to be afraid. But how do I get to the place where I'm okay with that? What's the Jedi mind trick I have to go through to get to the place where I can say, God is my light, God is my salvation, why should I, 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 I be afraid? And, and maybe some of you guys, like I had to memorize John 14, 27, maybe you should memorize Psalm 27, 1. It's even shorter than the one I memorized. God is my light and my salvation, why should I be afraid? God is my light. And then every time you're afraid, you just quote that little scripture, just quote that little scripture, just quote that little scripture. Fight fire with fire, with water, with with. Okay, I lost myself on that one, but fight fear with scripture. That's actually what I, what I mean to say. John chapter, in 1 John chapter 4, uh, John the beloved, um, John, the, the one, the disciple that Jesus loved, he was, uh, Jesus had 12 disciples. He was closer to three of them than he were 12, uh, and it was Peter, James, and John. And then of the Peter, James, and John, there was one he even spent more time mentoring, and, that, and that's John. John outlived all of the other disciples who died a martyr's death. John is the only one who didn't die by murder. Uh, but on his way to being murdered, he was boiled alive in oil and banished to the island of Patmos to die and go whatever on it, just all uh, of isolation uh, on an island. And I would say that his worst case scenarios outside of dying happened to him. I, I can't imagine a fate a whole lot worse than being Boiled alive in oil. That that would be that would be, and then to survive it, holy cow, that would be bad. And then to be banished. And then he, he's taken off the island of Patmos and he's re, reunited with the rest of the world and he dies of old age. And it's after all of that had happened to him that he sits down and he, he writes this letter. And towards the end of this letter in chapter four, he says something, I'm going to start reading in verse 16, we're going to go 16, 17, and 18, and, and here's the verses. He says, we know how much that God loves us. We know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in his love. So, so get this, the basis for our ability to overcome fear does not come from your faith muscles. You don't Beef up your, I just got to trust them more. Just got to trust them. 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 I guess it's, it's not about like, you know, powering through your fear. That's, that's not the basis of our ability to overcome fear. What you need to know is that the basis of your ability to overcome fear comes from your confidence that God loves you. And it's because I'm confident that God loves me that I can trust him. That's what verse 16 says. Does God love me? Yes or no? Is God the author of all the work? Is God over everything? Is anything beyond his control? Yes or no? And does he love me? The guy who controls the entire universe loves me. And it's because I'm 100% confident that he loves me that I can trust him. Are you with me? Doesn't mean that God brings bad things into my life, but we talked about the scripture last week in Romans chapter 8 that anything that Satan brings into our life to ruin us, God will use for good. 
Psalm chapter 50, Joseph said to his brothers who sold him into slavery, what you intended for evil, God allowed for good. It's not that God authored his brother's betrayal, but we live in a sinful, broken world. They have free will just like I do. And when they use their free will to bring evil into Joseph's life, God says, I'm not going to waste your pain. Nothing will happen to you that I won't use for the good of those who love me and are called according to my purpose. So either God will use it for good or he's a liar. There is no other option. So that's where it starts. It starts in God, not in me. I'm not the hero here. Does God love me? And because he loves me, I can trust him, even when I don't understand him. And the problem is, when I don't understand him, I assume he might not love me. And that's where that fear comes back. Keep reading. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, here's what happens. Our love grows more perfect. As we live in relationship with God, our love becomes more complete, more mature. So as my love becomes more complete, as I'm living in recognition of God's love for me, then my love for him and others, my love in general, I begin to live, love, give, and serve the more I follow Jesus. The more I recognize how much God loves me, the less I'm motivated by guilt and shame and the more I'm motivated by love and gratitude. See, I don't serve Jesus because I'm afraid of Jesus. I don't serve God because I'm afraid of God. I recognize that I'm 100% loved by God in spite of the stupid stuff I've done and continue to fall into even now. And it's when I recognize that he always forgives that I hate when I make him have to forgive even more. I don't like taking advantage of that. It's kind of like when somebody does something incredibly generous for you. You have the desire and the heart in your heart to be nice to them and be generous back. Not to earn their generosity. You've already had their generosity. But your gratitude changes your behavior. Does that make sense? And my gratitude and recognition of God's unconditional love that, listen, remember we talked about this, nothing in hell or heaven Alive or dead, before me, during me, or after me, will ever separate me from the love of God found in Jesus. Remember that verse we talked about? If you weren't here last week, you can watch that online. Nothing, my recognition for that changes me on the inside. And when that change starts to become mature, two things happen. So, we will not, why, so what? So, because when my love starts to become more perfect, more complete, more mature, so we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus. That's the first thing. I begin to live like Jesus here in this world. And the second thing that happens when I live in recognition of God's unconditional love for me, no matter what's been done to me or what I've done to others, I begin, number one, to live like Jesus. And number two, verse 18, such love has no fear because perfect love or mature love or complete love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his love. 
in regard to the area of fear, the Apostle John doesn't speak truth to combat our fears. That doesn't help. Like, what are the odds of dying on this plane, dying in a plane crash in this flight? That doesn't help me not be afraid. Like, it's not truth. He doesn't fight fear with truth. He fights fear with love. Faith doesn't overcome my fear. Faith isn't what I need to get over my fear. Faith is the byproduct of when my fear has been overcome by God's love. Faith is not the tool, it's the product. The tool is recognition of God's love. In moments of sheer terror, it's when I consider how absolutely and unconditionally I am loved by God that my fear gives way to faith. Even if I have cancer, does God know that's coming, yes or no? Yes or no? Then has he already worked that into the story of my life, yes or no? Will the end of my story bring him glory and me good, yes or no? And it's the recognition of his unconditional love and my focus on God's got this that pushes fear out and what's left over is faith. It's confidence that this too shall pass. This works out for his glory and my good. I can think of no better example than, of this than Michelle Fadel. Some of you guys might remember Michelle. Her and her husband, Dan Fadel. Dan was probably the o- most overqualified parking attendant we ever had. He's a nuclear physicist uh, by day and a Grace Church parking lot guy by weekend. And Michelle had stage four bone cancer. Found out in September, and a month later, we signed the lease on this building, and we had four months to get into it. And Michelle Fadel, man, I, you tell me I got stage four bone cancer. Skip Boston, I'm out of here. I'm moving down by my kids. And so they, you know, he put in for a transfer, and she was never motivated by fear. If you know Michelle Fadel, she's uber confident. And, but then when you, you're like, how is this chick so, like, like, I look at her, and I start bawling because I love her so much, and I, I recognize she's not... Like when New Year's came and we were about halfway through renovating this, this building, we were in the break room talking about, you know, so what was your New Year's resolution? And it gets around to her and she just laughs. She smiles and it dawned on us. She, she's not going to make it to Christmas. What's the point of a resolution? I start tearing up when she gets silent and she doesn't. She's talking about her kids coming next week and read her, if you follow her on Facebook, and there are a couple people after last night's service who just said, oh, what's her name again? I want to start following her on Facebook. What this chick talks about more than anything else is how, how grateful she is for all the blessings she already has. So she got stage four cancer, bone cancer, stage four bone cancer. That means you've got three to six months to live in September two years ago. And today, she's just as strong as she was when she was diagnosed two years ago. She's, she's bald as all get out. But she drives herself to chemo treatment. She's living a couple of miles away from all of her grandkids. They've all moved to the same town in North Carolina so that they could all be. That chick is still going. Like, it's not. Where does that faith come from? It comes from her confidence that God loves her in spite of stage. I'm all set. 
God doesn't owe me anything. And whatever happens is going to happen, and God will use it for his glory and my good. And that confidence in God's love pushes out fear. Never seen anything like it in my entire life, but don't know that I ever will. But I've talked to Carlos about this, and Brian Buford, and, and, and other people, Glenn, and different people who were always here. And I was like, that's the way to go. Like, I don't, right? I want to go with, when I go, with my held held high. Not panicking, soiling myself, begging and pleading and screaming and bemoaning. And I want to go cancer freaking bring it. My God loves me in spite of you. If she divorces me, God's good. No matter how bad life is, God is still good. No matter how much you hate me, it doesn't change how much he loves me. I lose my job. He saw this coming. He's got it covered. Oh, it'll get tough. But God ain't up in heaven going, oh, crap, what am I going to do? He got laid off. I didn't see this coming. Angels, come up with a plan. Did God have it worked out? Yes or no? Where's my confidence? In my ability to figure this out or in God's ability to work it out? You see what I'm saying? Fear says, God, you ain't big enough to get this. That's what fear says. Fear says, the worst thing is going to happen, not your thing will happen. That's what fear says. We don't have time to look up the story in Daniel where the three, three guys who being told, to, I'll, I'll reference it because I think it's brilliant. There's King Nebuchadnezzar had finished wiping off most of the Jewish nation and they ceased to exist as a nation all the way until 1948, uh, just right after World War II. But they stopped being a nation actually at that part of, of, of human history. And Nebuchadnezzar took all of the best and brightest. He crippled all of the, you know, and killed all of the ones who were fighting age. But the kids, the adolescents, who were, he thought, moldable, he would bring them back to Babylon and raise them as Babylonians. So the best way to defeat them would be to absorb them, right, and, and keep their best and brightest and but three of these guys were not completely absorbed into the culture, although they were brilliant. And so he, they were trained and taught and educated and eventually rose to the position of prime minister. But they were Jews. And so the Babylonian princes, as they were called, became jealous of these three guys and their influence with the king. So they knew that they were devoted to God and talked the king into building a 60-foot statue and inviting all of the diplomats from all of the neighboring countries that he had conquered uh, back to Babylon, modern-day Iraq, to worship this statue of himself. And these three boys wouldn't do it. And they uh, immediately went to the king and said, didn't you say that everybody had to do this or they would be thrown into a fiery furnace? He said, yeah. He said, well, your three little favorites, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they won't bow down to your statue. And so he brings them in and says, fellas, don't you know what will happen if you do it? And he said, yeah, well, we'll you're going to throw us into a furnace. He said, then, then, then I'm going to give you guys another chance. So let me, let me read to you this, this, their, their response in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But here's my favorite phrase in the entire Hebrew scriptures. But even if he doesn't, 
we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you set up. God is able to heal me of my cancer, but even if he doesn't, I will not deny the goodness of God by the way I react to it. She might divorce me. He might cheat on me. I might lose my kids. Somebody might hurt them. I might never find financial peace. God is powerful enough. But even if he doesn't, O king, my God is good. And I will not betray him by the way I behave right now. I'm not going to. Throw me in the fiery furnace. Leave me divorced and alone for the rest of my life. If I have to live in poverty and a home on wheels. If I'm all alone, if I have bone cancer, God is good. And I will not deny him by the way I act right now. John chapter 16, verse 33. This is the last verse I'm going to read to you. In John 16, verse 33, Jesus is telling his disciples about everything that's about to happen to him. And this night, after he tells them this, he's betrayed and he's tortured all night long and then tortured to death by Roman crucifixion the next day. And he says in Romans chapter 16, verse 33, I have told you all of this so that you may... Have peace in me. Not so that you will have an absence of fear. Jesus didn't say your fear is going to go away. What he said was, I've told you this, not so that your fear will go away. I've told you this so that you will hang on to peace. So that in the middle of your hurricane, you'll find the eye where there's clear skies. That's why I told you this. Keep reading. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. Job, probably the oldest chronologically book in the entire Bible, says man is few days and it's all full of sorrow. Jesus echoes that. He says, you know what? Life is hard, bro. Some of you will get cancer. Some of you will have your spouse betray you. Some of you will lose your job. Some of you might lose your house. Some of you insert your fear here. Keep reading. But take heart. Take heart. Because I've overcome the world. My ability to use whatever's about to happen is stronger than that thing's ability is to crush you. I'm stronger than cancer. I'm stronger than divorce. I'm stronger than unemployment. I'm stronger than loneliness. I got you. Ain't nothing going to happen to you that is so far outside my plan that I can't use it for my glory and your good. Fellas, either you trust me or you don't. So that's the question. 
Do you trust God's love for you enough to trust God? Say that again. Do you trust God's love for you enough to trust him? So where do you need to speak God's love into your life? God doesn't call us to live a life free from fear, but a life that is free in the middle of your fear. So what's your fear? What area of your life do you need to point at and say, even if this happens, God loves me, and it won't wreck his plan for my life. He sees it coming no matter what it is. That's why I can say I'm all right. I get fired, I lose my job, I'm all right. I get cancer, I'm all right. She leaves me, I'm all right. I lose that friend, I live alone. What is it? I can't get out from this debt, I'm all right. One foot in front of the other as God writes the story. Maybe that's it. Maybe say, God, you are my light and my salvation. And I'm gonna call you that because you are. Because I trust you to direct my steps and rescue me from the brokenness of this world. I'm not going to let fear drive me anymore. Maybe that's your prayer. Let's pray. God, thank you for loving us in spite of our brokenness. Thank you for loving us in spite of our sin. Thank you for loving us in spite of our past. Thank you for not bailing on us when we're ruled by fear, acting as though you've lost control, that you can't use this, that that you don't love me anymore, that you've lost sight of what's happening to me, that I'm going through things and, and you're not paying attention. God, my fear says all of those things about you that I don't want to say about you any longer. Forgive us for doubting your love for us. Forgive us for acting as though what we're afraid of happening, number one, is going to happen, and number two, that you didn't see it coming. God, our hope and our confidence isn't in our ability to fix whatever is about to happen or may happen or probably never will happen. Our confidence comes from the truth that you love us and will use even this for your glory and our good. Help us to trust your love for us enough to trust you with us. So in this part of the prayer, I want you to tell God what it is you struggle with, what fear drives your decisions. What has fear been making you do? Maybe you aren't following God because you're afraid that he won't cover your backside if you take that risk. Maybe you just can't trust him. Maybe you tell him that. God, I'm sorry for not trusting you. Rescue me from the brokenness of my own life and the brokenness that others have brought into it. not asking you to take my fear away. I'm asking you to give me peace in the middle of it. Help me to memorize that verse, Psalm 27.1, so that every time fear starts to grip me, I can say that you are the one who directs my path, my life. You rescue me from the brokenness of this world, so I will not be afraid. Thank you, God for working all things out for your glory and our good. No matter what other people do to us or what Satan brings into our life to ruin us, you will use for good. And that's the promise that we all claim today. And in your name, we ask it.